critiques galore. I have one for you from the Gospel Coalition. I think they got something a little bit wrong about the idea of Christian nationalism, but we will start with economics and the New York Times on this week's Corey Truax Show. Those of you who did not like my critique of Doug Wilson's video last week are going to love my critique of the Gospel Coalition this week. I know that's true. I, I am noticing in the church we're just at a, an inflection point on theology, and a, I think one of my roles needs to be making sure that two sides don't talk past each other and uh, be some kind of connective tissue. And so I want to try to do that today as I critique something the Gospel Coalition put out that I'm going to assume is not dishonest, but just got a little wrong and not not thinking clearly about what some of us are saying about uh, our our role in the world and what the Christian should want out of uh, out of culture and out of out of power play, uh, powerful places. So I want to do that. Some other things I want to do. I'm starting with that New York Times story that just gets a a lot wrong on how the right thinks about economics. Me and my wife watched a Netflix documentary or a documentary on Netflix that is maddening. Just, I very rarely, I don't really have a temper, but I very rarely internally seethe. I was just seething. I want to talk about that very briefly. And then I have a mystery for you at the end. I'm going to allow the anticipation to build. I'm going to start a new segment on the show. We'll probably do it every week for a while. But for tonight, for now... It's a mystery. I will tell you when we get there. Welcome to the Corey Truax Show. Wherever you find podcasts, you can find me, Corey Truax, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Threads. Look all those places for my weird name, Corey Truax. You will find me there. You can also email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. Speaking of that email address, that is where I get this newsletter from the New York Times every morning called The Morning. I don't read it every day because I like to cycle through news i have a segmented strategy from whence to get news and one of the rotations is the new york times and i'm glad i came across this particular story here is their headline for it we're covering an argument inside the republican party all right well i don't consider myself to be one of those but i am generally on the right and they are talking about one of the splits in rightism that i have been interested in over the last, call it, uh, year or two years. The The idea here is that there are, there's a growing split on how people right of center in the United States think about economics. Here's what they write. I'm just going to read you what they write and then comment along the way. This is from their news, newsletter. The Wall Street Journal editorial page represents an outlook that's, they're talking about their their perspective and they are old school conservatives. That's the Wall, Wall Sorry, the Wall Street Journal editorial page. They represent an outlook that dominated the Republican Party from Ronald Reagan's presidency until 2016, when Trump came on the scene. That old approach, the approach that I I would have grown up with, you can think about it as the classical conservative economic approach, says it, it, they say here, it favors an approach that variously, it's variously described as laissez-faire, basically means hands-off, it's small government, or sometimes called neoliberal. It includes very low regulation, low taxes, cuts to government benefits, and high levels of trade and immigration. Yes, all those are true. That that has been the traditional conservative view of how to grow an economy and grow wealth. Back to the story. Its patron saint is Milton Friedman. Side note for me. That is a worthwhile thing. If you have done your 
deep dive on YouTube through all the theology you need to learn, then Milton Friedman is a next great place to go so that you can learn some economics. This guy, he's one of my absolute favorites. Back to the story. Uh, oh, sorry. It's patron state is Milton Friedman. He argued that free market capitalism is the best way to lift living standards. I don't know how you could argue anything else. If we're talking about living standards, square footage per person when it comes to living, air conditioning, heat, refrigeration, amenities like appliances, electricity, how, what share of your money goes to food every week? Uh, needed food, because some of you have a high share of your money goes to food because you DoorDash a lot and you eat out more than you maybe you should. Yeah, the every time capitalism and laissez-faire type of economics comes to a place, their standards of living go up. That's why the standard of living in the United States has largely been going up and to the right since the uh, the end of the revolution. That's That tends to be how things work. That's one of my favorite stories. In 1920, the average household had none of these three things. A car, indoor plumbing, electricity. By the end of the 1920s, the average household had, I think, at least two out of the three, if not all three. And that was the roaring 20s. It was, uh, I believe that's Calvin Coolidge era, just the, the economics of hands-off federal, federal government gave to this incredible growth. All right, back to the story. The problem for laissez-faire advocates, a problem for people like me, these, these uh, traditional conservative thinkers on economics, the problem is that many of their predictions have not come true, to which I say, that's false. What I predicted has largely come true for the economy. Well, let's see what they say. Quote, income growth for most Americans has been sluggish since the Reagan revolution. Only the affluent have enjoyed healthy gains in income and wealth. That is a lie. Yeah, the higher earners have, ga grained, have gained a higher share of the, of the revenue of the wealth that's been created. That's fine and true. It's true and it's fine. The, the critique of that would be based on jealousy, on envy. I, look, I mean, I look around at people my age and a little bit younger. If wealth was increased to the point that we are living decently easy lives, owning homes, can get the cars that we need, are making some money, maybe we can plan a little bit for later, ultimately because the federal government takes what it does, especially in Social Security, that is really taking from us the ability to plan for later as they plan for us for later. I'm talking about retirement and old age. If I have what I need and have gained in wealth, what do I care that Jeff Bezos got a lot more than me? What do I care that Mark Zuckerberg got a lot more than me? If my share got bigger, I'm not going to let envy drive me to hate super wealthy people. It's not true. The standard of living for the middle class person in 1970 is substantially greater for the middle class person in 2020. That's what the older people in your life are telling you. They're telling you, we had it so hard back then. I'm, I'm making an old person's voice to make fun. Don't be offended if you were an older person listening to me because actually a lot of my listenership's a little older. You guys have a lot of wisdom. You're telling us. You have no idea what our cars were like. None of us had a computer in our hand. Guys, the houses we lived in had all of these problems. Yeah, we, we have way, our standard of living like my, right now, I'm, what am I, 37? I am 37. I am living a better life right now than my dad did at 37. <laughs> at 37, I think he already had all four of his kids. 
So that dude was probably struggling, if I if I could guess correctly. But that's it's just not true. It's not true that the the income growth has been just sluggish for the middle. Not the case. Go ask your parents. Income growth has been pretty strong for the middle and for the lower income earners as well. Back to the story. Other measures of living standards look even worse. In 1980, life expectancy in the U.S. was typical for industrialized country. Today, it is lower than in Canada, Australia, Japan, South Korea, or any other large company in a country in Western Europe. Right. Can you tell you the number one reason for that? We are a lot more obese than Canada, Australia, Japan, South Korea, and the other large companies in Western Europe. You know why we have a life expectancy lower than them? We've literally eaten ourselves to death. We became so opulent and so wealthy. We ate and ate and ate. We're, instead of deaths of poverty, which is what most of humanity suffered for most of time, we are now suffering deaths of too much. And then you add in our, our artificially high, well, not artificially high, I shouldn't say that, our inordinately high suicide rate compared to most of those countries besides Japan, and yeah, our higher gun death. We do have higher gun death than they do. That is going to contribute to that number as well. But we don't have an, a, a super, uh, a, a much lower life expectancy, but we have those factors that you're not factoring in here to your narrative. Continuing in the story, some laissez-faire advocates claim that these statistics are all misleading. And that the, that's me. I am suggesting that they're misleading. That the past several decades have, in fact, been a glorious period of prosperity. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what the math says. Back to the story. But most Americans disagree, polls show. Even Republican voters disagree. Yeah, I know that. We live in a cynical, negative time, negative world that we are living in. We don't like to think things have gotten better. Now, listen, there are bad things in the economy. We sent a lot of jobs to Mexico and China. Those have been real struggle. We We have some problems, I admit, with how revenue used to be shared and how companies focus on the shareholder, the person who holds stock, instead of the employee. We do have some problems, but if you're just asking for denotative numbers, life is better in 2023 than it was in 1973 or 1983 for the average person. People don't feel like that, but facts supersede feelings. Back to the story. This dissatisfaction created the opening for Trump to take over the Republican Party. Yes, that's true. He did so while calling for less trade and immigration and promising to protect Medicare and Social Security. So he's, yeah, his arguments are for big government social safety nets and to cut off trade, which creates wealth. Uh, The Trump campaign was a sharp departure from the proposals of Republicans like Paul Ryan. Paul Ryan would, yes, the old speaker of the House, he would represent an older version of economics. Only a few more paragraphs here. Each of the Republicans who hopes to lead the party after Trump faces a choice on economic populism. Will they return to Reagan's neoliberalism or try to create a more coherent version of Trump's populism? Now, this is the thing I've been talking about for a while, even on the show. I I do want to know. Those philosophies of free markets, of small governments, and free people creating their own wealth and taking care of themselves, is there going to be a party for that? I could see a scenario where the answer is not no, at least not one of these two. There might have to be something else emerge. Because, yeah, Trump did, um, he revealed something. There's a whole bunch of folks who feel like an economy left them behind when manufacturing went to Mexico and China. That, 
that's a a real zeitgeist animating the people, especially on the right. And generally, rightism, in, I'm sorry, in general, rightism is now becoming such a anti-institutional force that it thinks negative things about giant corporations and companies in Wall Street, and it, it wants to see those powerful people affected, and they, they see government as a way to do that, the, the way to balance it out. That might be the future of this party. I hope not, but that seems to be where it's going. A few more here. A few of Trump's uh, potential uh, successors, including Nikki Haley, have opted for Reaganism, but more profile more high-profile young Republican leaders have not. Josh Halley, Marco Rubio, J.D. Vance are among the Republican senators who have called for trade trade restrictions and the government to lift and, and for action for governments to lift incomes. I've talked about those before. Those guys want to give people money if they have kids. DeSantis, now going to DeSantis in Florida, is telling a case study because his national record was thin enough. I'm sorry, is a telling case study because his national record was thin enough that he could choose which path to take. So we know so little about him, about DeSantis. He can choose the Reaganism or he can choose the Trumpism on the economy. And he's, uh, the story says DeSantis has embraced some parts of Reaganism, low taxes, low, a smaller bureaucracy, and school choice. But the first item on his agenda is decidedly different. He's called for trade restrictions with China. This is, I saw this quote here from DeSantis that give it, uh, we are a nation with an economy, not the other way around. That's a, a powerful way to say it when it comes to trade restriction. I, I should give some clarity. Uh, trade restriction will shrink your economy. It is bad for growth. Now, you might say it's worth it. I am willing to pay the economic cost because we don't want to trade with those people because of how China operates and what they do. We just don't want to trade, and we're willing to take the hit. But we need to say that honestly. We can't pretend... There's not economic consequences to doing that. So I wanted to correct their thinking. That was one. They got some things wrong. When we do have free markets, the people thrive. Now that's my biggest, when it comes to that part of the world, governments, that is my largest priority. I want to see people thrive. The older I get, I recognize I'm, I'm getting a little older and I see couples I know that I love in their early 30s, in their mid to late 20s. And I see this, these college students I see all the time, and I want, I want them to have situations where they can go to work, make a good living, not stress about money. I want that for those that I know, and I just want it generally. I don't want dads to stress about making a living. I don't want a young man in his 20s worrying he can't get married and have kids because he thinks he can't afford it. We should want an economic system that allows for God's design that men and women can build households and take care of their kids. And I am telling you the, I haven't made it. I have not made a biblical argument. I have made an economic argument. That's true. That the history of economics says free markets lead to more prosperity, more prosperity leads to more human flourishing. And that is what we want. And so reading Stuff like that in the New York Times is frustrating to me because I think I actually think they are just lying. I don't know if they're just wrong, but it, it is frustrating. Now, if that was frustrating, you can put an exponent of a gajillion, not a real number, put an exponent of gajillion on my frustration for a documentary me and my wife watched. Uh, I guess that was Sunday night. 
something called, I think it's called Taking Care of Maya. I'm very little, I have very little commentary. I just want to encourage you to watch it. I think it's worth it. It's very upsetting. Here's the baseline story. A young girl suffers from a very, very rare disease. She's getting care for that disease. And having a relapse for that disease, she goes to the emergency room. The emergency room doctors and nurses have never heard of this disease, have no interest in the parents giving them any kind of counsel, and it leads to, it ends up leading to hundreds of days, I believe it's over a year, I think that's right, could be a little bit less, of the child just being taken from her mother and father. being I would call it medical captivity, being held captive by the hospital system. And what this documentary shows is that is a little too common that the state steps in, not the federal government even in this case, the state steps in, the government steps in to take children because the state thinks it is superior. And it is maddening in part because God's good order, parents taking care of children, is being superseded by the state. It's not the way it's supposed to be. I recommend watching it, and I'd love any feedback you have or if you know stories like that of just doctors and hospitals just deciding you don't get to have your kid anymore. We know better. If you have stories like that, Corey Truax Show, or after you watch it, you want to talk about it and comment, it's Corey Truax Show at gmail.com, Corey Truax Show at gmail.com, or you can get me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. That's something we talk about a lot, a lot on the show, is these biblical principles, these timeless principles, and how they analog themselves into the, into the real world now. The idea that there is realms of authority, there are governments, there are families, there are churches, and they, they need to be careful not to get into each other's lanes of sovereignty. And so I think we do a good bit here. Like we try to apply biblical thinking to the modern world, and sometimes those things are weird. I, actually, I read one here recently. I think it was in Exodus where the law is that if if you are working in your field and you're burning your field, that was a very normal thing to do back then. To, I guess it helps with, with growing things. You're, you're burning your field. Well, if in starting that fire, you burn your neighbor's field or you weren't careful enough with your fire and you hurt your neighbor's property in some way, well, you've got a, a system there in the Bible for recompense. And so while maybe it's true that your neighbor <laughs> has not been burning something and it has hurt you, or his, his burnt field has not got into your burnt field and hurt your property. While that might not be d- directly true of you, it might be true of you that someone's negligence and what they were doing really did lead to injury for you. It might be that you or someone you love got hurt in a car accident or got hurt at work or in some other way. And those things have real consequences. When you are hurt, when you are injured by others, you often have a, a loss of income. Medical bills are severe. And while you're trying to recover from those effects, you're also trying to navigate through a labyrinth of a process of trying to get justice and trying to get this made right. I want to tell, tell you on this episode, don't be intimidated by that. Don't be scared. There are people out there to help you. And the one I want to point you to right now is an attorney here in Greenville. He's a personal friend of mine. His name is Samuel Harms. You can Google him. It's Samuel Harms, H-A-R-M-S, as in stay out of harm's way. You can Google Samuel Harms right now. If you or someone you love need an attorney for for one of those situations, his number is 864-666-6666-864-666-6666. His name is Samuel Harms, attorney at law. For real, uh, I've seen these things hurt people. 
I know when they have been in accidents or hurt by somebody else in, in their work. So I, I just want to encourage you: don't let that don't time don't let time go by. Take action. Get here with get, uh, get with Samuel Harms. Reach out to him here in Greenville. He's near Woodruff Road in Greenville, thirty three Market Point Drive, Greenville, South Carolina two nine six zero seven. His number is six 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 six. If you have had your metaphorical field burned by a neighbor, or that is you've been injured or hurt in a car accident, give Samuel Harms a call today. Here's where I want to go next. I critiqued last week Doug Wilson. And while I'm nervous about some of the implications about his world and how he teaches it, I also want to recognize his opposite, I think, has some things real wrong. I mean, when I, I'm talking there in generalities and, vague, and vagueness, we're at an inflection point right now in the American church about what the church's relationship is to governments and to laws and what we should want. What are the things we should want from governments? I want to emphasize the various people on the different sides of this debate that I've heard, I best I can tell, they're all believers. They all love Jesus. And I, I don't want this debate to turn into something where it, it becomes a, a test of orthodoxy. This is a, a tertiary deal, and we can debate about it. We want to get it right. Just because it's tertiary doesn't mean it's not important. But I, I don't want us to, uh, to hate each other over it when we see it differently. And so here's what I, I want to play for you. Uh, the Gospel Coalition has these things called TGC Talks. They are short, 10, 12 minutes at the most, of people giving a, a presentation on a given topic. The TGC Talks series this week put out a, a, a video, and it's on a podcast as well, called uh, Why America is Not a Christian Nation. And it seems to be responding to people who think the idea of Christian nationalism is a good idea. That word, ultimately, that's what we're going to talk about here. It means nothing and it means everything. Because everyone is using it and they all have a different definition. Now, one more caveat. We'll get to the video and I I want to respond to a lot of it. It is about six minutes that I want to play for you. The, The thing I've noticed about Gospel Coalition people is they tend to look at the guys I talked about last week. I would go Doug Wilson and some of the others like him. And they're critical of them. And I have heard some on more of the, that Doug Wilson theonomy post-millennial side, talk about the TGC like it's some kind of liberal outfit. I don't think that's fair. I think there's valuable people in the church from lots of perspectives, and we don't have to poke at each other all the time. In particular, though, I do think the Gospel Coalition is poking right now unfairly. I think this guy, his name is Michael Horton. I've heard some other things from him. I liked him in the past. I don't think this is strong. I don't think this is a strong critique of believers who argue that, yeah, we want to see Christian things happen in the world. So let's go piece by piece. He is, I fast forwarded a little bit into this. He's basically arguing America's not a Christian nation. So uh, we'll start with that being the premise of this first part. But for whatever reason, this idea of a Christian nation is invoked, does the general concept stand up to careful biblical scrutiny? I would suggest that the Bible opposes any notion of a Christian nation apart from the worldwide body of Christ. See, there was a time, biblically, when the church was the state and vice versa. He's going to argue that's Israel. So first, get his thesis. There can be, there is a Christian nation, but it is the body of believers that's transnational. So no earthly 
state, no earthly government, will be a Christian government. The only Christian nation is the transnational nation of all believers. Whether you agree with that or not, it's at least an interesting thesis. I don't agree with it, but it is an interesting thesis and interesting argumentation. Here he comes. Again, it's Michael Horton from the Gospel Coalition. Israel, the Old Covenant. God was the head of state, and the whole nation and land were holy. That is, set apart to the Lord. Like Abraham, individual Israelites looked to the coming Savior and were justified, even as we are, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the coming Christ alone. But there was another covenant that the people, rather than God, swore at Mount Sinai, promising all this we will do. If they broke it, then God would drive them out of the land just as he had their enemies, as we see in Deuteronomy 28. It's like the covenant that Adam swore to keep but transgressed and was driven out of the garden. If you're not getting his argument right on the nose, he's saying here, there can't be a Christian nation because God made a promise to Israel, a nation, and then those people, the people of that nation, they made a promise back. And so that's the one covenant God made with the people. He made a covenant with Israel. Therefore, no nation today can have a covenant with God. I don't disagree with that formulation, but I think the consequences and the application of that theology is what he misses. Unlike God's unilateral promise in the Abrahamic covenant of grace, the national covenant's promises of blessings and curses in an earthly land were based on Israel's faithfulness. However, as Hosea 6-7 tells us, like Adam, they broke the covenant. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, the Messiah, to fulfill the law and to bear the sin of the world. Having done this, he rendered the national covenant with Israel obsolete, as Hebrews 8.13 tells us. The new covenant... So I, don't, I don't think we'd, any of us would disagree with that. The, the implication, though, he's about to draw is the problem. All that's true. There was a one covenant with one people. Now, that covenant is inherited by... Believers, we are, there, there was always one Israel. There was always one people of God. There were, we were always going to be grafted in. Jesus was always the point. So yes, there was one covenant with one physical people. And yes, that covenant, you can use the word fulfilled. I forget what word he just used. That covenant is fulfilled. But that doesn't answer a really clear, clear question about what a Christian American, a Christian Russian, or a Christian Australian, or a Christian Bulgarian is supposed to be doing while they live in this land. That is far greater in its promises, blessings, and mediator. The exclusive designation, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession, once belonged to the geopolitical nation of Israel. Exodus 19.6, but is applied now in the New Testament to the worldwide body of Christ, 1 Peter 2.9. Not physical descendants, but all who trust in Christ from every people. As Jesus says in John 8.39-59, Romans 9.8, Galatians 3.10-29, and elsewhere. See, the New Testament makes God's people don't come entirely or even mostly from one particular nation or people group. God's family is group. God's family is made up of people from all the nations of the world. And it's that family that is the primary family for the Christian. The first major controversy. Yeah, that's true. Our first and 
man, our, our first identity being in Christ, that's huge, very, very important. My, I think you can maybe see what he's, his arguments here aren't going to make the points he make, that he needs to make. If he's arguing against Christians who are saying, we want to pursue Christian things in this world, well, by telling us, well, your first identity is in Christ, we just go, yes. And by saying there was one covenant people, that, that, people's the, that people is the people of God, yes, we agree with that. And now, since I am the people of God in a country that God just he happened to place me in this one, he didn't place me in another one, I want to see that people group brought into that covenant, added to the covenant of uh, uh, that we have with the Father, this new covenant, by making converts. And seeing that culture thrive by being in subjection to King Jesus. I'll I'll let him finish. Here we go. In the early church was over Gentile inclusion. And it was settled at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. If it would be a violation of a decision included in inspired scripture to regard ethnic Israel as a chosen nation in the new covenant... How much more offensive to God would it be to give that status to Americans, particularly of a certain ethnicity, even completely unrelated to Abraham? Uh, this is a, that's where I'll stop him. I think I just want to say this. He's, he has made a definition of Christian nationalism that is fairly easy to argue against. His definition is a people who want to assume America or or their nation, whatever their nation is, that they've replaced Israel, that they're the new people of covenant. If that version of Christian nationalism exists, I, well, I'm sure it exists. I'm sure those people think there's there is got to be a people that just think America is special, the apple of God's eye. That's got to be real. I would just like to say peacefully and gently back, hey, that's not actually what we think. Yeah, we're we're not saying America is God's special people and is replacing Israel. That's not the argument of any Christian nationalism. I'll never use that term. It's it's too, uh, what's the word? It's just, I guess in the modern parlance, we say toxic, but it's it's just a ruined term. But yeah, those of us saying we, we want Christian things to happen and Christian thinking to come from powerful places, we aren't saying America's special. We're not saying there's any country that's particularly special. And I hope we can not have to have that debate because that's, that's a straw man. That's setting up a straw man, arguing against a straw man, which is easy to argue against, instead of actually engaging with the idea of the question, what should we want? What should Christians want in this world? I would just sum up my response, or my answer to that question, is that what we want is every Christian, sorry, every country is Christ's. We're not arguing that America's special. We're arguing that all nations, all nations belong to Christ, and that Christians in all those countries should be seeking to bring things in subjection to Christ. That's our argument, not that America is particularly special. You're listening to The Corey Truax Show wherever you find podcasts. Find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. Email the show at CoreyTruaxShow at gmail.com. You can use the drum roll in your head as I now reveal to you my super secret segment. If I had uh, the production value, I would do it. I'd have like a big theme song for the super secret section or segment. Our lead pastor said this week in a sermon something that I had to dwell on. He said he didn't want Christians to be embarrassed. That was the word. I thought that was a powerful word. Embarrassed by the law. That there are things in those first five books. For that matter, there are things in Joshua 
when it comes to taking over the land and driving out all the inhabitants. That can sound disturbing. Even reading them in context, they can sound disturbing sometimes. A lot of times they sound disturbing because there is no context. They don't have historical context or textual context. And that that got to me in a way where I, here, here I'm a guy who wants to be part of the solution. I want to say back to the Gospel Coalition types, hey, you're arguing against something that we don't even want, so you're cool. Like you're not, that's, that's not cool to argue that way, but don't, be, don't worry about what we're arguing because that's not it. And then for the people who struggle with saying things like we want God's thinking to be installed in the world and they, that people go read God's thinking and are offended at it and appalled by it, I don't just want to tell them, well, get over it. I want to gently teach those who are coming along. So every week for a while, I'm going to take one of the laws that freak people out and teach it and give you some context around it. For example, people, especially atheists, people who don't like Christianity, will argue this. In Deuteronomy 22, 28, the Bible says this. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, she's not engaged, and this man seizes her and lies with her, has sex with her, and they are found, they are, they are found out, it's, it's discovered that this has happened, then the man who lay with her, has sex with her, shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver, and she shall be that man's wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all her days. Oh, excuse me, all his days. The argument is, the Bible just condoned rape. That was a rape that just happened. And the Bible says that man has got to pay the husband, pay the father and then take that uh, woman as a wife. A woman has to live with her rapist. You know, that would be appalling. Yeah, sure, I agree with that. Good thing that's not what it's saying. This whole section of the laws about sexual immorality. I could read you a lot of it, but I'm just going to back up to verse 22. I read you verse 28. Let's back up to 22. Let's see what this very weird law is teaching. Verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, they, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and, and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. So consensual adultery, teaching us that God takes, what, what's the modern day equivalent? Well, at least this, what God takes sex is a big deal. It takes marriage as a big deal. It's not to be shared just by anybody for fun. It's in the covenant of marriage. That's where sexuality is to be practiced and enjoyed. Adultery for, uh, and, and uh, excuse me, consenting adultery can end in death for those who take part in it. Verse 23. If there is a betrothed virgin and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, so she's betrothed, she's in the city. Remember what happened on the other Verse was in the open country. That's your compare contrast. If there's a betrothed virgin, in a man meets her in the city and has sex with her, lies with her, you shall bring them both out to the gate, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Well, you're killing a woman here for being raped. Not That's what the city thing is. The city thing here is saying... This, this, had to, this had to be consensual. It's not rape. In the city, we're also packed together, tightly together, for, for a woman to, go, to have sex with a man is going to be consensual. They're, 
there are too many other safeguards in how these people lived that for her to be exposed and vulnerable in this way meant she desired to go be exposed and vulnerable in this way. And she wasn't raped. She had... Uh, she, she took an opportunity she had to go commit a sin, as this man did, and they are both punished for it. Then, verse 25, But if in the open country a man meets a woman who is not betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lie with her shall die. But you, should, you shall do nothing to the young woman. She's committed no offense, punishable by death. For this case is like the man attacking someone murdering his neighbor. He met her in the open country. Saying here, in, in this scenario, she was vulnerable, had, uh, had not put, uh, in, in, in that tribal situation, you were vulnerable. This man was a predator. He went out to prey on a woman. And in that case, where there was no consensual relationship, he is punished, not her. And then, knowing those things, we get to... 28, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, that they are found, it just means it's found out. No, there was no, no rape here. This was consensual, and they are both found. Then the man who, that this is just, this is all describing in 28. This is just describing premarital, what we call premarital sex, what we should call fornication. You get all the different scenarios there. One here is, Two people in the city, they're having, it's two, uh, a married person having consensual sex, and that is punishable. Verse 25, uh, it's out, uh, out there in the country. That's a rape. She is not, uh, she is not, uh, vo- excuse me, she is not, the word I'm looking for, culpable, not culpable, but he is. All right, now back to the idea of consensu- consensual sex, but not married people, two unmarried people, not adultery, but fornication. Well, what do we do there? This man who has now violated this this woman, he marries her. This was a consensual relationship. And you might say, oh man, still, in, in my modern day, that's so weird. Well, don't have some chronological snobbery. Four women of that time, and by the way, for about three billion, uh, that's too far, a, mil, a billion and a half, I guess? For about a billion and a half women on the planet right now, the whole method of life is you're born to a man who protects you, then you are married to a man who will protect you, this is how this is how women were cared for. That's a not a law about rape. There's a law about what happens when there's two consenting adults having a sexual relationship they were not supposed to have, and so they get married. That's it, guys. I know that verse sounds weird, especially when it's isogeted, when it's isolated from the rest of the text. But man, when you just look at this long list of sexual laws, you find. There's consistency in the language to find what is unconsensual versus what is consensual. When there's consensual sex, when it's both both parties are married or one is married, married, then we've got an adultery problem and it's punished harshly, in this case death. Then rape is something different. And then consensual sex amongst uh, two people who are n- neither are married. No death is involved there. There's, that fornication is not punished that way. That fornication isn't... I wasn't punished at all. You're given a marriage because of this thing you did. This thing you did. You now have to take responsibility for her. You you wanted the liberty. You wanted the freedom to do this with her. Well, now you're going to take care of her. That's the the deal. We're going to do more of those over the coming weeks. I, those are going to be hard, but I think it's it's a worthwhile endeavor to make sure we really know our Bible, so that when our kids have questions, when 
skeptics and those things that people who have a preloaded good objection that we're ready to answer them. That's what we'll be doing over the coming weeks along with a lot more. I'll be back with another new edition of the Corey Truax Show next week. Until then, everybody, peace and love.